Welcome to the Conscious Leaders podcast. I'm your host, founder of Conscious Leaders, Ruth Franger. Today I'm bringing you Guy Singh Watson, founder of UK-wide organic fruit and veg company, Riverford. Now we did this interview outside Guy's farmhouse in Ashburton in Devon, overlooking the hills. It was a nice spot. So you'll hear a bit of wind on the mics, but also the tweeting of the local birds. So, uh, so I hope you enjoy. Well, I'm a, a farmer's son. Uh, grew up on a talented farm. I think I pretty much always wanted to be a farmer. Kind of flirted with a few other things, but um, came back to the farm in my mid-twenties and started growing organic vegetables mm. on a very small scale without any real plan. I just knew that pretty much knew I was unemployable, didn't didn't want to work for anybody else. It had to be my own business and it pretty much it had to be outside quite a bit. And it was probably gonna be food and farmings and and as I had renounced my claim to the uh, tenancy which had been taken over by my brother by leaving for a couple of years, um, whatever I did had to be I had to be able to do it on a relatively small acreage with a relatively small amount of money and I guess that kind of pointed towards vegetables I decided to do them organically because I had spent two years as a management consultant and I thought I saw it as being a growth market and that's what we'd always been looking for in my previous jobs you know I really did not want to be selling a commodity which is what my father had done all his life um, yeah so that was back in um, 1987 spring of 1987 i applied my first leaks yeah so management consulting to organic veg that's quite the shift yeah i mean i i I kind of liked well i found the management consulting kind of stimulating you know i like the thought process i have always been interested in business and um mostly from a point i think even then i hated it actually i hated the lying and deceit and the <laughs> utter worthlessness of what i was doing um you know and the way that people were treated i mean a lot of the companies we were working for were just desperate to outsource everything to well at that time i remember it being mexico obviously subsequently it became uh, the far east and and uh, you know with no concern for their staff you know they're working in miserable conditions while the executives flew around in a private jet you know, I found it repulsive then and I find it repulsive now and I just want nothing to do with it. So that, despite the fact that I was kind of interested in it, and I was actually, sounds arrogant, I was phenomenally good at it. I mean, I was, you know, I joined having been milking cows, you know, I scrubbed a cow shit off, went up to London, got a snappy suit. And within six months, I had a bunch of MBAs working for me because they were all just... You know, they were just so pedestrian. I've always taken the view that the that if... if you know, if you can't explain it from first principles, you know, if you don't understand it yourself, it's, it sounds like bullshit. It almost certainly is bullshit. And, you know, that has been my abiding guiding principle uh, through business. Is It's almost to look for the areas where other people are doing stupid things and there the opportunities lie and some really, really stupid things get done in business. Hmm. And so what was it about the way you were brought up or the way that you grew as a person that meant you could kind of drop into a management consulting world and, and kind of thrive, even though you didn't love it, that thrive, you know, in a traditional sense of success or whatever. Well, sort of practically in terms of opening the door, I went to Oxford and I got a first. And okay, that, that, that's that'll how, help. That, that's, that's how I got the interview. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and they kind of liked having that on their, you know, list of people working for them. I told them I had a natural sciences degree, not an agriculture degree. <laughs> and um 
So, but what enabled me to do, what enabled me to sort of thrive at it, having got in the door, was, I don't know, I'm, I'm a, um, uh, it was kind, in some ways, it was a kind of blinding sort of arrogance, really. I mean, to, you know, call a spade a spade and, and not be taken in by, you know, all, so I kind of stood out. I became the company sort of maverick, really, who would say it, stand up and say the unacceptable. And, you know, when you're paying a lot of money for a management consultant, they, they quite like a bit of enigma, I think. I mean, they did back then anyway, maybe very different now. Uh, and I, I really, I did work everything out from first principles uh, and, and, you know, with no sort of business knowledge. And I, I swear that I came to better conclusions than people who had gone off and spent tens of thousands of pounds studying for an MBA who, you know, um, who actually seemed to on the whole have very little to offer. Mm. And so from management consulting, you moved into organic veg. Did that involve a move out of London then at that point? Yeah, I, I had spent, well, I was working in New York, actually. I mean, within 18 months, they sent me to New York to open their office there. Oh, <laughs> I wow. mean, it was it was a stagger. You know, it was the 80s. And if you shoved enough white powder up your nose and had a snappy suit, you could do anything. It was, I'm not sure that it would be quite like that today. Um, but I hate, you know, despite being interested in it, I hated it. And then one day I just couldn't bear it anymore and walked out of the office and I spent six months sailing boats around. One, you know, I've always loved the sea uh, and, and then came back. You know, I wanted to start my own business, knew I was unemployable, uh, wanted to be outside and, um, yeah, settled on organic vegetables. And, you know, I, I think I was very lucky to have kind of found my thing. You know, I, I absolutely love what I do, you know. 35 years later, I'm still loving it every much as I did, you know, right back at the beginning. And so now at the point that, I mean, Riverford employs, you're, quite, you're like a small corporate now. Would that be fair to say? <laughs> In terms of size? I don't know how that feels, but... Uh. Um, uh, yeah, it's a bit weird sometimes, the scale of it. There are about a thousand co-owners now. We became employee-owned uh, two and a half years ago. Uh Yes, and it has grown phenomenally and it's grown a lot in the last year um, through COVID. Uh, you know, I have very mixed feelings about scale. I mean, fundamentally, I don't like big business. Uh, and, I, and I've always felt quite uneasy. In fact, I do remember writing in some business plan somewhere that we would never have more than, I can't remember, it was 30 or 50 people working on one site because I had this theory that social order and mutual responsibility broke down at about that level. And I hate formal management structures. Uh, and I thought above there, I could already see that those become, you know, you can't do without them. And I, you know, I spent my whole life riling against that sort of formality in business. But we have grown well beyond that. And I think it's a good thing. I mean, you know, big doesn't have to be bad. It just usually is. Mm. Um, you know, you can do things differently um, with respect. and. But I definitely don't have the skills to do that. So it's grown beyond that in a good way by virtue of, um, you know, lots of other people within the business. You know, in particular, I would say the managing director and the, the people director have, have managed the growth over the last five years, you know, incredibly well to the degree where I look at it now. And I, you know, most definitely think I, I couldn't do that. Mm. Amazing. <laughs> but, yeah. So I have. So I've kind of moved away. No, I still... I'm still very involved. I suppose it's about probably rather less than half of my, I'll say, headspace. I don't know about time. It's probably rather less than half of my time. And the the rest of the time I am devoting to 
various involvements with various small businesses the main one being a little farm i bought up the road where you know we have i don't know we've got about six employees now i think turned over three hundred thousand last year and i swore that i'd never have a tractor more than 60 horsepower and i really didn't want it to grow into any big business um but i don't seem to be able to help myself <laughs> it's <all> happening again <laughs> i can feel it sort of happening again i you know I, I i'm someone who has lots of ideas and you know likes to put some of them into practice and that sort of tends to lead me into uh the i love the ideas i'm, I'm often not quite so keen on the reality of what that means for my <laughs> daily life and so this whole employee ownership thing because this is kind of the reason i came to you was because you have transitioned to employee ownership could you talk us through a little bit about the firstly i guess the philosophy behind that for you and then what it was like to go through that process okay well the philosophy really is that i you know i've always wanted the business to be useful i've wanted my life to be useful and i suppose to develop on that a bit what do i mean by useful i mean making a bit of the world a better place and ideally doing that in a way that others may be inspired and follow and make more of the world a better place um and but i look at how many businesses are run and i just don't feel that that's the case at all i think you know i think business can, definitely can be a force for good and it has the potential to unlock you know an in incredible innovation and creativity in a way that more planned you know state run and and the more lumbering kind of corporations i think find it very difficult to do so though i acknowledge that i am absolutely appalled by the waste of human talent that you know I, I do think my observation from you know whether it's people picking up carrots in a field creating an advertising campaign or whatever if, if you get two-thirds of someone's potential out of them at a bit in a business you've done exceedingly well and i would say more like a third is 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 much more common you know i think business is tremendously wasteful of us as human beings I don't why think, do you think that is well m mainly because I think the main number one problem, I have a bit of an obsession about this, but is the assumption that our primary motivation is avarice, uh, you know, greed. And, and I, I just think that's just patently untrue. There's no end of research to show that that is not true, that money is a very poor motivator. If you don't pay people enough and they feel they're un, unfairly rewarded, then it will continue to be the main feature. <laughs> you know, so it will detract from their motivation. But once they feel that they're being rewarded um, fairly, you know, all the evidence is that additional rewards have a very brief, um, short-lived effect. And if you look at the um, City of London, um, there is lots of evidence that they actually have a negative effect. So why can't we design a system that appeals to what really motivates people, which is the desire to do good stuff, to be part of an organisation that they identify with the values, you know, i.e. to have really a purpose in their working life, I, you know, we all want to learn new things and get better at stuff. I mean, this is what Dan Pink calls mastery. And we all want to have some control over our lives and, and not be told right what to do right down to the very finest details. That's what, again, Dan Pink calls autonomy. And, and, and my observation, you could probably dress those up in different ways and subdivide them and give them different terms. But fundamentally, that's what makes us tick. And that's how you will get the most out of people. And if you can do that, and get more out of people you will almost certainly especially if you combine that with being genuinely useful 
my experience is you'll almost certainly have a successful business. But it's not easy, you know, to actually appeal to uh, you know, purpose, autonomy and mastery requires, you know, a much more finessed approach to management than we generally see. And uh, I know there are, you know, plenty of conventionally owned businesses that recognise that and do it very well, but there are a hell of a lot that make, you know, and particularly in the public sector now, you know, I've lived through ever since Margaret Thatcher came to power, but I would say, you know, it hasn't slowed down and, and we now have the, a business, uh, we now have a government which is so wed to this idea, you know, <laughs> that people only do things for their personal gain. Um, you know, it's just incredibly destructive. It's tearing the country apart. And, and, and it will be our downfall. I, you know, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating that. I mean, you know, I think the, the approach they take to education and health and, and, you know, in my sector, managing, um, managing agriculture, you know, which is incredibly complex. You know, it's not just about producing food cheaply. It's, a, you know, it's about, well, climate change now and, and biodiversity and, 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 you know, our position, you know, socially. So, and, you know, it's incredibly subtle. And to use that very blunt hammer of, of, of um, you know, just money as a way of manipulating people is 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 uh, is almost doomed to failure I, I i do think it will be it will be the end of us actually i do feel i think business in the way that we're currently approaching it is incapable of dealing with the subtleties and the interactions and the complexities that we need to address the climate crisis and i i'm, I'm afraid to say i really do think it's, it will destroy us mm. there's no doubt that we're clever enough to save ourselves um, whether we're wise enough and, and able to organize ourselves and manage ourselves uh, to save ourselves, I, I'm I'm not very optimistic about. So you sought to do something different with Riverford. Yes, yeah. So I wanted to demonstrate that there was a better way of organising people that you could get more out of them and give more back to them, both financially and in terms of those motivations. You know, um, the autonomy, mastery, and purpose. That and and I wanted to demonstrate that very publicly. Uh, hopefully in a way that that others would follow because as I say I am you know on the whole I'm pretty appalled by the way most businesses are managed I mean particularly you know those around finance and the city. Mm. So employee ownership I wonder from people out there listening to the podcast whether it sounds com complicated or it sounds like awkward or expensive or you know it's going to take ages and h how was the process for you like what well, it share? is. Whenever you step away from the norms, if you try and do anything in a different way, I mean, the lazy way, if you're a lazy manager, is always to do what everyone else has done. You know, the path's been well trod, the structures are there in place, everyone knows what's to expect. That's the easy thing to do. But if you're going to really go back to, you know, pulling it all, deconstructing the whole thing and then trying to put it together into something better, you know, you wouldn't come up with um, the systems that we have now. And I think you would come up with something much closer to... Uh, employee ownership where those involved in the business you know who are the ones who know most about what's going on in it are in a position to control its direction and to share in its profits and you know in its success and that's fun I would say those are the two basic tenements of employee ownership and yes there is a lot of complexity and structures um, behind that but they're not really there's nothing that goes on at Riverford that wouldn't be included in a in a well-managed, enlightened business in terms of management practice. And we have a fairly conventional management structure. Yes, we do have an elected staff council who are actually very 
um, influential and and they do set the pay or they have a, a remuneration committee that sets the pay so I suppose that's a bit radical but I mean generally the way we make decisions is pretty conventional but I would say it was a bit more enlightened it does involve a bit more consultation um, you know trying to get a broader input into decision making which has unquestionably uh, been a success um, mm. and has led to better decisions and quite surprisingly to all of us hasn't really slowed the decision making down it hasn't made us cumbersome uh, if anything I'd say it's more made us more ne nimble and, and able to react quickly actually because people get behind those decisions you don't find yourself fighting the sort of battles you know that where people are you know just resistant to change actually people seem to embrace change it's you know it's been the whole process has been um, really inspiring, actually. It's, it, it's um, you know, and really, um, you know, given me faith in humanity in a way that I don't get when I, you know, observe most of what's going on around me. I mean, people are better, kinder, more generous, more creative than our institutions allow us to be on the whole. I, I do firmly believe that. Mm. So it sounds, I mean, back to the autonomy thing on its own, it sounds like you've given away a considerable amount of responsibility through things like a staff council. Mm. Um, how does that work? Co-owner like, council. Co-owner council, <laughs> sorry. I might have said staff yeah, no, council. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you probably said so. So, okay, so there's a co-owner council and it, and no doubt as you were quite particular about that word that's what you call your staff now yeah they decided on that name it's actually not one that i particularly like but <laughs> but but um yeah no that's what they decided on and i'm i'm absolutely ashamed that i seem to be the last person in the organization that i still occasionally do say staff which i am pretty ashamed of actually but no they definitely regard themselves as co-owners yeah yeah so these these i'm gonna have to really hold myself to these words now these this co-owner council how because it's really good for for people to hear like what this is like day to day like how do they <clears throat> operate you said, i think you said they were elected so there's a process the there but... yeah okay the the the, the struck okay the co-owner council is they're elected i think they're roughly 30 in a constituency elect one and uh we must so that would imply and there are 20 of them that would imply 600 but i've there probably were 600 when we last held the elections, but um, That's we're, most we're more stuff. like a thousand now. So, and then 20 on the council. I think we're increasing it to 25. Mm. Um, and they appoint the trustees. Well, I'm a trustee. And we have two external trustees, and then we have two trustees appointed by the um, co-owner council, and they will ultimately appoint all the trustees. So, uh, and the trustees ultimately. You know, in, if you look at it in terms of ultimate power structures, the trustees have the power to dismiss and select the the next um, managing director stroke CEO who then appoints the board. So, you know, ultimately the trustees have the power, and and they are controlled by the by the co-owners. However, you know, if you ever get to people exerting their ultimate power, you're probably finished. <laughs> you know, you know. So, it, most things. To date, you know, we we uh, there is a huge amount of consensus, and I wouldn't want to give people the idea that we sit down and talk and talk and talk until we reach consensus. Consensus generally is arrived at very quickly. What um, do you think contributes to that? It's not always the case. I don't it? know the the kind of maturity with which 
co-owners use their power and, and, and the co-owner council, it's just extraordinary. I mean, the idea that the only people that are fit to make decisions, you know, are the board and they have some extraordinary, almost divine power which invested in them is just, you know, I probably assume that's it. I've been absolutely gobsmacked by the sophistication of thought of not just the, the uh, co-owner council, but co-owners generally. One of the most, as we were approaching... EO day, you know, when we became employee owned, well, I would say almost the most commonly asked question by people who were cleaners, packing vegetables, was there was a concern that this would slow down decision making and make us less responsive as an organisation. I mean, that's quite a sophisticated, I mean, maybe I'm way out, I mean, I was really surprised by how that came up over and over again. I mean, I think that shows, you know, a real understanding of you know, what it takes to organise people that actually I think a lot of board members would do well to learn from, you know. So I, it's been, it really has been extraordinary in that way. They're, they're, you know, I think we were all a bit fearful that, you know, people would flex their muscles and, you know, the power would be used inappropriately. And I can, I've only been in one meeting where that was the case. Actually, it was co-owners kind of arguing amongst themselves, um, and, uh, you know, I thought actually not being particularly kind to each other and respectful um, about how they dealt with their disagreements. But that was, honestly, in three years, two and a half years, that's been the only instance I've observed. I mean, mostly people have been incredibly uh, respectful. Mm. And the worst behaviour I've observed in the last five years has always been in the boardroom. You know, that's, Most senior. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it is. It, and, and we actually employed a coach as part of the process uh, um, to become more enlightened in our management, because it is as much as those, as much as the finance, you know, of, of ownership, and as much as the structures is, the culture is every bit as important. And we did have some real issues to deal with. Mm. So the soft uh, was as important as the hard. <coughs> definitely, yeah. And we 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 employed a coach who was absolutely um, brilliant at addressing those. And uh, you know, and I have to say, I. I thought all the problems were in middle management. Um, you know, that's where I saw the bad practice being acted out and the disrespect and so on. Uh, but I was, you know, I, I was, it was pretty humbling. Uh, it actually started with me, uh, you know, and I had to really look at some of my own behaviours, what I considered to be being a kind of um, idiosyncratic, syncratic, enigmatic entrepreneur was actually bullying sometimes yeah you know when I got bored or frustrated at how long a meeting was going on my behavior looked at from another point of view was could be seen as bullying and sure enough other directors started behaving in the same way and and looking back on it it's actually it's it's a very humbling experience and and other people within the business thought we were a bunch of twats I mean, they really did. It's embarrassing looking back on it. They were laughing at us, actually, you know, both frustrated and laughing. We were behaving in a way which was very laughable. There were a couple of women in the room, but they tended to stay quiet. It was very laddy, very macho and, um, you know, and pretty hideous, actually. But I mean, but we turned it. We did really turn it around quite quickly. And, uh, you know, and actually I've really enjoyed that, that process of learning. And, I was going to say, it's quite a self-awareness journey. Like, how, yeah, how was that for yeah, you? Yeah, I think everyone was quite surprised by how quickly I changed. Um, 
Sorry, the dog's arriving and my coffee. Thanks, mm-hmm. you too. It's nice. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, 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 well, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it and, and learned stuff that I can apply at home with my family <laughs> as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and I think everyone was surprised by how quickly I changed and, and, and what effect that had on other people. And I don't know, one of the first things was, you know, because often I knew when I'd been a bully, I sort of did at some level know that I'd behaved badly. And was to recognise it and apologise quickly and publicly. That was the first kind of lesson the coach taught me. And it was just radical. I mean, everyone was just, what? Mm. (laughs) A guy doesn't behave like that. What was a kind of, was there any uh, enlightening moments for you there where, because it sounds like quite a journey of self-awareness, were there any moments that where you you paused perhaps and watched yourself? Um, Well... Canada, the coach, used to sit in on our meetings and she'd play stuff back to me. And I sometimes I wasn't entirely sure that she was right when she said that I'd misread a situation. But I'd go away and, you know, ask a few questions and, you know, invariably found out that she was right. And then, you know, the power of acknowledging that you've got it wrong. I mean, it's just, you know, it's such an easy thing. There's no point in making an apology if you don't really mean it. But as so long as you do really mean it and it's coming from the heart... It is really, it's really quite an easy thing to do and you can just move on so quickly from it. You know, that enables you to learn. Everyone else learns around you as well and you can, and you can move on. And, and um, it was, actually, it was a staggeringly quick transition. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to extrapolate too much from my personal experiences because I think I do have quite a different approach. I think as a leader... I've always been, um, I wouldn't say necessarily self-aware, but I've been self-questioning, you know. um, So I do think about the impact that I have on other people. I don't always assume that I'm right. Uh, And, um, you know, so I think that maybe helped me to change quicker than I would otherwise. But I think there is generally an assumption that, you know, you get to 60. I'm 60 now that, you know, it's all over. All you can do is play out what you've learnt and maybe use your wisdom and so on in, in certain areas but I don't believe that's true at all I, I, I've really enjoyed the change and, mm. and learning yeah. mm. and when you say it had quite a dramatic effect on the middle management what, what happened then, what happened after that after you, as a senior team as a trustee <clears throat> I'm probably not close enough to be able to answer, answer that with a lot of authority but I can give you my sort of angle you know, I think we probably imitate the behaviour of those that we, I don't know, that have power, perhaps that we admire. Um, I think rather too often people do admire people with power in an unquestioning way. But uh, so, uh, you know, and I think when our behaviour changed, you know, perhaps initially mine, um, that did seem to... It just seemed to open the door for a lot of changes to happen, which I think um, were um, probably over, you know, needed to happen anyway. And a lot of people wanted them to happen. There, there, there was, there was always we had this sort of aspiration to be this, you know, this kind place that looked after people and respected people. We just didn't have the skills to do it, and and actually, I hadn't communicated clearly what it was that I wanted I thought everyone assumed I assumed that everyone understood what it was that I wanted from the business but 
It wasn't. They didn't, actually. Not even at a board level. Not even my sister, who was our marketing director at the time and, you know, obviously known me all my life. So I just hadn't... So that assumption that people know what you want, I mean, I just got that so wrong. And part of becoming employee ownership owned, when I sat down with the lawyers, they say, you've got to write a document called the Founders' Wishes, laying out how the business is going to be run in the future. And that will be the basis for all the, the legal documents. So I went away and did that. And, uh, and I presented it back to a couple of groups of people. And, uh, you know, they thought jaws dropped. And I, th- and I just couldn't understand why. I said, well, but this is, this is what I've always wanted. <laughs> Surely I've always told you this. Yeah. And, um, and I think I probably had said a lot of it, but I hadn't said it in the right way and I hadn't said it enough. And probably I, I'm, I tend to be very involved in the, the sort of practical stuff. That's what I like. And I think that buried the kind of more theoretical, philosophical stuff behind it and people just hadn't heard it mm. and or maybe I hadn't said it anyway so I did it over and over again to different groups uh, around Riverford I developed a system of um, I got a load of old packaging out of the pack house and drew pictures on it of you know that demonstrated the sort of things that I wanted us to achieve I mean mm. and what I, were they should you share a few nuggets from <laughs> the vision it sounds like a visionary um, well one was I remember just remembering the picture one was that we would be pr- pragmatic that we would um, have pragmatic knowing compromises. You know, you cannot always be what you ultimately want to be today. You just can't do it, you know. So there is, you know, anyone who doesn't not prepare to compromise in business probably won't be there for very long. But the important thing is that you come back and revisit your compromises. You don't normalise them, you know, because that's the way that a lot of hideous behaviour becomes just broadly accepted. And... uh, I know I can remember the drawing there. It was a bull rush in the wind, and it was bending. And uh, you know, if it just starts to stand rock upright, it will break. But if you're prepared to bend, then you can come back upright again. So, and that was one of the images. I had a, I had a, uh, I had a block of wood with a whole square hole cut in it and a round peg. And uh, you know, could we get it to fit? Um, you know, and that was all about. You know, we are different. Uh, and we won't necessarily try to be like everybody else, but we will learn from everybody else and seek to understand why they do what they do the way they do it. And we won't necessarily follow it, but well, we might do. Uh, but you know, th- but we will understand if we just choose to do something different. We'll understand why we're doing something different and and potentially the costs of doing it differently from other people. So I had a lot. Oh, I had a chain and a rope, and I remember you know, and I don't know the thing was anyway the rope was worked because it was wound together and uh, anyway and these were these were all images that backed up the um what became the our kind of almost you know motto or whatever which is we do it our way the we being that we're stronger together the rope uh do it the importance of doing things really well right down to the fine detail uh and that involves everyone and and it's you know and that's it's too easy sometimes especially for values driven businesses to neglect actually the detail of making sure you are just really bloody good at what you do mm. um, power of a metaphor there <laughs> they can stick though can't they These. yeah well people and 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 our our way being that we will not be afraid to challenge the norms we will be a sort of challenging organization mm, so you're radical leading yeah, from the front yeah, yeah. yeah. so that, and those were the three things and out of that fell other things but yes you know people don't you know words especially written words are quite a poor way of conveying information i think i'm, I'm very dyslexic and that so it's always been difficult for me to write 
word processes has tremendously helped me through my life. But mm -hmm. so and I and I so you know the power of imagery and shapes I think is very important in getting things across. And anyway, so that that was uh, I must have done that twenty times, and it evolved over a period of six months into you know what eventually was enshrined in in uh, the documents around employee ownership mm. and so indeed the management practices actually mm. uh, and then the coach and and charlotte the people director has been absolutely phenomenal in turning this into the living culture of, of riverford yeah mm. so sort of playing out your vision yeah yeah no i mean really I mean, I think for 10 years we've been working together and she didn't understand how passionately I wanted to achieve this stuff. And um, and so and what her place was in, in delivering it. And as soon as she got it, she was just absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I suppose looking back, it is frustrating, you know, that, that it took us so long to get there. But anyway, we got there in the mm. end. Quite a few, a few leaders that I meet talk about like a North Star or like an overall general vision or direction that helps... So there's autonomy there, but people know where the end game is, or at least the, the yeah. maybe unachievable end game. You know. Well, we th another thing that's come from is that I, I actually one of my other principles is that we won't seek to measure everything, or we won't pretend that everything is measurable. Mm. And we'll measure what we can and use that to guide our decision making, but we won't neglect the less, you know, tangible, quantifiable mm. things, which tend to be, you know, around human values and. Uh, and I think the world is much more complex, less easily quantifiable than, than we tend to um, pretend in in business. And I had these, you know, quite vague kind of things. You know, I yeah. want to use the business to make the world a better place. Well, what the hell does that mean? You know, you have to turn that into something which is tangible, you know, in people's language that they can relate to every day in the mm. decisions they're making. And, um, and we did, a couple of years ago, start this kind of, OKRs, objectives and key results thing, you know, which is, you know, bold and audacious objectives, which will be measured by key things that you can measure. I absolutely bloody hated it. I just really, I just had to stay quiet in the meetings. I could kind of see that it was important and it worked for other people, but I, I, I'm quite a kind of intuitive person and the, the having, trying to measure everything, sorry, that was the link, the, mm. trying to measure everything I find quite frustrating and I think can be quite problematic but you know to deny the value of the measurable things so taking that north star and distilling it down into measurable things that people can see how they can contribute to you know following the star mm -hmm. uh, was was part of this process and it has actually been tremendously successful i mean and it has really helped people you know understand what you know how that relates to their everyday working mm. life so to the day-to-day -day things yeah 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 mm. so um i don't know we were we all the things around people the togetherness um you know one of our uh key measurable results was that that we got into the sunday times uh, top 100 employers and we don't have the final results, but it's looking very promising. We set that as a goal because we were so far away from mm -mm. it. You know, look at the ones who do really well. They're mostly kind of, um, you know, information businesses, highly paid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that, quite honestly, is much easier if you're in that position. So we did think, it, anyway, it looks like, you know, I think we set ourselves five years. I think we might have done it in two. Wow. Uh, you know, the the doing it, you know, doing it well, we set some results you know some measurable things in terms of you know financial stuff and and we've 
in five years and we've smashed them all in two, you know. And, wow. uh, you know, so it has, you know, and I think it really has helped people in t and in terms of how we're perceived, our place in the world. Um, I think becoming a B Corp was part of that because that introduces its own sort of measurable structure. And uh, we absolutely smashed that in terms of our sort of scoring. And, uh, and it, so having these sort of structures and ways of measuring things, actually, I, I, I've kind of eaten my words a little bit. I mean, <laughs> I, I can, it's not something that I will ever personally be kind of enthusiastic on at a gut level, but I can absolutely see how see it why. has helped us. Yeah. 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 So, um, so when someone joins Riverford now, they become a co-owner straight away. And is everybody, how does this work practically? Is everyone an equal owner? If you've been there longer, do you have more shares? Like how do you, can you buy more shares? How do you? Okay, the shares, they're basically two forms of co-ownership, employee ownership. Um, either, and I think to be employee owned, I would say really, a lot of people say they're employee owned and they've got 10% of the shares in employee. I would say, you know, you're talking about at least 51%. We're 74% at the moment. But, and those shares will either, can either be owned directly by staff, um, you know, so they can trade them when they leave, they can sell them, they can enjoy the benefits of, the, of them increasing in value, or they can be owned in trust for the benefit of the staff, in which case they don't need a trading mechanism. Um, and, and it really means that those who are currently employed by the organisation are the beneficiaries, but when they leave, that's the end of it. So they, and they each have their benefits, possibly the direct ownership might our observation we visited a lot of employee-owned companies so that kind of lends itself towards a more um dynamic innovative structure uh, you know culture but but my god it's complicated and can be divisive and you know you have to have a means of trading the shares and if you fundamentally believe that that avarice is not a good motivator of people why would you adopt that model and that so so but I actually I wavered. I was really excited by, you know, dynamism, innovation is incredibly important to any business, especially an, you know, e-commerce business. So which is essentially what we are now. So so, you know, I was excited by that, but I also it didn't sort of philosophically align with my position. And I just couldn't make up my mind. And actually as a board we couldn't make up our mind which model to go for. And it was it was the staff council who decided. We set up an interim staff council. Uh to kind of see us through the transition and they sat and they talked about it for long and again it was one of those incredibly inspiring you know I sat on one meeting that they had and it I suppose it was the higher paid people were overrepresented in that staff council and it would be the higher paid people we would have done better out of the direct ownership model but in the end they voted unanimously to go for the trust model because they thought it was better for the organization and better for their colleagues, and I find myself welling up even you know, saying this because it was, you know, it was incredibly moving, and um, you know, so to, you know, anyway, to assume, you know, you look at how the bloody city operates. I mean, what a bunch of cannibalistic animals, you know. I mean, compared to what happened in that room that day, it sounds quite beautiful. What, it was. It what, was. What was the moment like? What was it? Well, it was just to hear people, people, even people who had really, um, who diametrically, you know, started from a position that they were absolutely for direct ownership. You know, I, you know, you'd see them discuss it and come round, and in the end, um, you know, they all decided unanimously to go for the uh, for the ownership and trust, which, 
as we were so bloody indecisive as a board, <laughs> that was great because it, you know, it made the made the decision, and that's what we did. And I am so glad. Mm. That so we it benefited did. them less, but they decided to do it. Yeah, yeah, Archie, that's my dog moaning <laughs> away there. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, yeah, you know, it was people not acting in their direct personal mm. self-interest. You know, which you know, it's, it was very noble to see what they did, and I. You know, I see it happening over and over again. We've made an absolute bloody windfall during COVID. And, uh, you know, we're discussing what we should do with it. You know, there's the potential that each staff, sorry, I said it again, each <laughs> co-owner, uh, you know, could walk away with five grand, maybe even ten, you know. And, you know, these are and people... And that's the conversations yeah, that you're having. Yeah, and these yeah. are, you know, these are people who are not well, you know, they're you know, 20, earning less than 20 grand, some of them. And... Um, uh, yeah, so that would be huge. But actually, the majority, you know, are really want us to put whatever. Well, I think we're moving towards a position with whatever co-owners take an equal sum will go into a pot to to um, deal with environmental issues to, oh, wow. to reduce our. our so is this like a foundation, or is this within the business? Or well, we're it, we're having the discussion at the moment, and nothing's been decided. But yeah, there is the uh, you know we're going to. It looks like we're going to put a very substantial amount of money, millions, into a pot to to do whatever you know a subgroup decides is 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 best to reduce our environmental impact. And um, you know we're spending quite a lot of time talking about that at the moment. And believe me, it's far from obvious. Mm. You know, um, I'll just say this: I don't know. You, they, they, you know, all the stuff around everyone clambering to say that they're going to be net zero by whenever is just such a load of bollocks you know i mean most people are just reckoning on offsetting that and and it's it's just it's I, i've seen you know it's throughout my career it drives me nuts it's just another excuse to carry on with business as usual you know we just put a bit of money over there we'll buy some dodgy carbon credits <laughs> for planting bloody sitka spruce in uganda yeah. or something which probably will die anyway and, and, and we'll just carry on as usual. You know, no, you know, we need to fundamentally question, you know, what we're doing right down to the very detail and be prepared to make some really fundamental changes. And yeah, yes, that will involve some sacrifices. And, and we, you know, so this is it's just been used as an argument for everyone to carry on as normal and not to face up to the fact you know, that we really can't carry on as mm. normal. You know, you, you know, we just can't carry on flying around the world to conferences and you know, and and uh, you know, and and Riverford can't continue importing apples from New Zealand because they're slightly more crunchy than one that comes out of a store that's grown in you know mm. Europe. So it's just you know we have to accept a bit of loss of crunch to save the world. You know, I mean Jesus. Are we going to say to our children and grandchildren, no, we let it all go to hand, hell in hand? Slightly crunchy. Because I couldn't tell you know my apple wasn't crunchy enough. Yeah, and what's your approach to like? local and because you're a you know national business in that way and you've got big reach and you know you can source your materials from wherever or, or produce from wherever like how how do you think about the practical and the quickest and cheapest way of doing it versus you know um, well and, uh, yeah i mean in terms of our environmental impact you can take you know, intuitively we all feel we should eat local food and um and and i don't think we should dismiss intuitive judgments but i don't think we should make our decisions based purely on them and you know so you know a 
tomato grown in Spain during the winter will have about a fifth of the carbon footprint of one grown in a hothouse in the UK. A pepper, it will be about the tenth. So, you know, counterintuitively, the Spanish one is better. I mean, even better is obviously not to eat peppers and tomatoes in the winter. But um, so, you know, we will, we do, but I do, and, and we have, so we've continued to import. Actually, we import more now than we did 10 or 20 years ago. And and we've gone too far. I, you know, I, I, I think we import too much. And, and I think a lot of our customers would say that. I mean, of course, everyone's a hypocrite. You know, they'll say, that they don't want imported vegetables and if we didn't but where sell are my them, tomatoes yeah they're, they're <laughs> just going to buy them somewhere else so unfortunately yeah. we are all pretty hypocritical me included um but i think we need to push much harder i'm i'm you know i don't it's that bending reed thing i don't think we can be totally dogmatic and say no we're not importing anything but you know we can to push to stretch ourselves yeah yeah we can stop buying apples from New Zealand and invest in really good storage in the UK or or maybe just import them from South Africa or or, or Argentina where they have about a third of the carbon footprint so you know um, but you know better still store them in the UK mm, to kind and, of lead on that more yeah yeah I think we need to lead on that more and I think we need to just say no sometimes no you can't have that it's you know there is a movement and we did this in 2008 we carbon labelled our boxes for a bit in the belief that actually I never believed this but anyway that that customers would decide and their enlightened decisions would drive us towards producing a lower carbon box I mean that sort of market-based mentality that you know which we're all so wedded to is just a load of crap and we just need to abandon it because that will not people will not make their decisions that way it's up to us as a business to say you know no we're not going to sell this you know we're going to sell you know what is a reasonable you know carbon level of intensity in our food and, and if it's beyond that certain level then we're just not going to sell it mm. and um and, and then we will lose customers as a result but i think we will retain enough to mm. have a viable business and i think we will slowly change things mm. that way i mean it sounds like your decision making at riverford has often come back to that this is not about money or just about money not that it can't be about money but that has to be only a smaller part than it would of many businesses. Yeah, I mean, ever since the beginning, my thing has always been, how can I be useful? The definition of useful has changed a bit. How can I be useful? And how can I run a business that can profit from that and mm. thereby continue to be useful? And inevitably linking those two up is a fair amount of storytelling. Um, which hopefully is done truthfully, mm. um, and, uh, and you know that's been yeah always been the foundation. Instead of starting, you know where is the commercial opportunity? What can we make money out of, and and how can we design a business around that? That we've never done that. So there've been a few things you know historically. I did once. I've, I've always hated the whole squeeze and tease. You know, bank accounts, utilities, always they get you in on a discount, and then. When your back's turned, you know, suddenly you're paying yeah. a non-competitive rate. And I did, but I found, my God, we're doing that ourselves. You know, we were offering discounts to new customers, which weren't available in the small print, said it wasn't available to existing Rupert customers. And I came back from holiday uh, once, actually, and I opened my computer... And there we were. Riverford was was actually this was sent to me by a customer, but Riverford was on a discount site. Was was sandwiched between discount leg waxing and discount 
paintballing. And this is it's always dangerous when the uh, you know when the <laughs> owner goes off on holiday. I just wrote an email to the rest of the, the a very rude email, which I'm a bit embarrassed about the title, but. Uh, anyway, it, it's saying, you know, I'm sorry, this is my business, and it was, and we're just not doing this. We are not discounting, and we're just going to stop doing it, and you've got to find another way of selling the boxes. And we did, after a bit of discussion, a couple of months later, we stopped doing that, and our rate of acquisition halved, and it took us two or three years to get back to where we had been. Mm. But now we are the envy of our sector because, you know, we have much more sticky customers. We don't do those discounts. We don't have all the costs associated mm. with customers that, you know, stay for two weeks and then leave. Uh, and I think we're respected for it. It's and, more it's more organic yeah. in its growth in yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's a more ethical way to do business and, and um, you know, in a more long-term, Approach. you know, respectful way to do mm. business. Yeah. And so to kind of go back to your roots, really about what was it that has inspired you to behave this way? Like, who in your life mm. is, has helped you with that? Um, well, unquestionably, the most influential person was my father, which is, um, uh, which is sort of funny, because he was awful at business, and, and actually, he was pretty awful at managing human relationships <laughs> as well. But there were, there were sort of elements that I learned from him. You know, he had a sort of idea. That, well, I think trying to be useful definitely came from him. Uh, you know, and my mother, actually. Um, you know, a sort of honesty. Um, and, a, you know, a care for fellow human beings, even though he didn't really have the skills to enact that. He was quite inspirational in his approach, and he did inspire quite a lot of people. I think including me in a in a in a way, despite the fact I was probably pretty disrespectful sometimes. So I think he laid the sort of foundations for it. And then, you know, I'm not, you know, it's, there was a book I read, there was a guy who moved down here. Um, I found this book in my attic the other day, actually, it was rather embarrassed. I borrowed it 30 years ago, and I never gave it back. Anyway, he came down from Clark's Shoes, which was set up by, you know, Quakers up in Somerset. And uh, they, he had been sent off by Clark Shoes, decided that there should be an artisan handmade shoe business. And they said, go off and do that. And he came down to South Devon and he set up this cooperative making shoes. And he was quite an inspirational character. And I used to go and have a drink with him when I was just starting up my business. And he gave me this unpublished manuscript. And it was, I can't, it was sort of about, you know, it was all about businesses being useful, really. And it was never published, but that absolutely chimed with me at a very influential time and then there were a few people around here who were organic growers and sort of had been since the 60s you know very idealistic um people who i ended up you know there were a couple of them i ended up having a huge amount of respect for i mean you know just their approach to the world again it was around being useful i suppose mm. and you i think probably i've been shaped more by what i don't like than what i do <laughs> actually i'm very uh, wary of sort of heroes generally you know because you know putting anyone on a pedestal is is dangerous isn't it um mm. and heroic leadership is and we were saying this just before is 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 old-fashioned now there still seems to be some rather heroic leaders <laughs> in the world but it's not that appealing especially to young people but i think to people in general well i'm really pleased to hear you say that actually and i because i do think it's really dangerous i mean the world most definitely, you know, does not need Boris Johnson's. It needs Angela Merkel's, you know, and um, and Biden's. You know, we don't need Trump's, you know. Mm. So, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it, I really hope that it is changing and moving away from that. And I, you know, actually one of the most, you know, 
you know, probably one of my heroes at the moment, is our managing director, Rob, who is, you know, he is a very, very modest but quite brave guy who has slowly um, gained the respect. I don't think he's a born leader, you know, but he has through his actions and through his listening and his courageousness, you know, particularly through COVID, some of his decision making has been phenomenal. You know, he has really won everyone's respect. And, and uh, um, yeah, so, uh, so you know, I think he's more the sort of leader that we need now. He's brilliant at getting the best out of people, at developing people, but he's not, you know, afraid to make a difficult decision mm. if he has to. If he has to. And, um, and how do you, like, look after yourself? So I guess you've, you know, you've given away a, ve- a very large stake in the company. It sounds like about, what, 76%? 74%. 74%. Yeah. Of the company, I sold it. You sold it. I sold it at about a quarter of its market price. Okay, so people bought into it a very small percentage of what is actually worth. They didn't. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't pay anything at all. I mean, it was Mm. and because we've done well, why that that has been um, paid off out of profits quite quickly. So Mm. uh, it would have been. I mean, that's why I didn't charge more because I didn't want to lumber the business with uh, more debt. And so you basically t- gave most of your business. Yeah, mostly. Away. I did, it's interesting. I did. So I just couldn't envisage how I could spend that amount of money. <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly. And I. And actually, as it turns out, it's really easy. Yeah. <laughs> but Back to uh, your sailing days. But I do. Right. But I do maintain that even if I had sold it for four times what I had done, it wouldn't have made me any happier. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm wondering how you look after yourself. Was that part of? Looking after yourself and what else? Do oh you do? well, that's my son just walked up the path, and uh, we're going to go for a surf. So I do love surfing. I'm too old for it now, and my sons have surpassed me years ago. But I, but I still love bobbing around on the ocean on a surfboard. Uh, I do love the ocean. I love sailing. Um, but I'm mostly, actually, what I've really appreciated is that I just. I, just, I need to do stuff. There needs to be things I can get my arms around and say oh, I did that. You know, it, it's. And I just haven't got away from that. So there are still a couple of crops on the like artichokes. That's my thing. I grow the artichokes. You know, I plant them, I weed them, I pick them. And and that gives me huge pleasure. I still like making things. I have various sort of projects. And I reckon I can do half my time in sort of business activities. I mean, particularly meetings. I mean, my God, it just... Meetings, emails, telephone calls. It just, if I spend, you know, I did yesterday, I spent probably six or seven hours doing it. I was so miserable in the evening. <laughs> I mean, my son came round for supper and I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't um, really engage with him. It just, I, I do need, I need to get out and do physical stuff. I don't know how that's going to work as I get older. But I mean, I hope maybe it'll just be going for a walk. I did go for a walk at the end of the day, but it wasn't enough. Mm. And then I came back, came home and opened my bloody computer again. Yeah. Well, you're in a beautiful spot here, um, <clears throat> Ashburton in Devon. So, yeah, I guess it's a good place to nourish the soul outside. I do, looking after yourself, actually, but in terms of Rob, our managing director, if I have one kind of worry about him, is I'm not sure how good he is at looking after himself. Mm. So, it's it a message is. to him then. Yeah. Thank you, Guy, for that interview. I I really felt the deepness of Guy's conviction around how employee ownership and that transition had really transformed both himself as a leader as well as the co-owners themselves as they took more responsibility. And they really acted in the interests of the group over their own self-interests, and that's pretty powerful. 
I'm Ruth Ferenga, and you've been listening to the Conscious Leaders podcast. You can find out more about our leadership development consultancy and how we help leaders build a calm, collaborative and productive workplace at consciousleaders.org.uk.